miserere means have mercy. So this is really a very appropriate psalm for us to pray during this season of Lent as we ask the Lord to have mercy on us. Let us begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have mercy on me, God, in your kindness, in your compassion, blot out my offense. Oh, wash me more and more from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. My offenses truly I know them. My sin is always before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned. What is evil in your sight I have done? That you may be justified when you give sentence and be without reproach when you judge. O see, in guilt I was born, a sinner was I conceived. Indeed, you love truth in the heart. Then in the secret of my heart, teach me wisdom. O purify me, then I shall be clean. O wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear rejoicing and gladness, that the bones you have crushed may revive. From my sins turn away your face, and blot out all my guilt. A pure heart create for me, O God. Put a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, nor deprive me of your Holy Spirit. Give me again the joy of your help. With a spirit of fervor sustain me, that I may teach transgressors your ways, and sinners may return to you. O rescue me, God, my helper, and my tongue shall ring out your goodness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall declare your praise. For in sacrifice you take no delight. Burnt offering from me you would refuse. My sacrifice a contrite spirit, a humbled contrite heart you will not spurn. In your goodness show favor to Zion. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with lawful sacrifice, holocausts offered on your altar. And now let us pray together. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. As we continue our journey through Lent, Bishop Rhodes offers his reflections upon two key parables— the Pharisee and the Tax Collector, and the Sermon on the Plain. Hear more about how these Gospel readings can bring us closer to Christ through humility and charity. Then Bishop answers questions submitted by listeners on topics including effective prayer, re-evangelizing adult children, and incorporating Latin in Mass. Do you have a question for a future show? Submit it at RedeemerRadio.com askbishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. Thank you again for making some time for us and joining us on the radio and in our podcast. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Kyle. How's your Lent going? It is going. It's, <laughs> it's, it's actually been a great Lent. I have yeah, been good. learning and growing and been inspired. There's, been, there's so much uh, being offered, I feel like, this year for Lent. There's so many different things that we can participate in and yeah. reflections and emails yeah. and stuff. So it's been, it's been a lot. It's been good. 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 How and about you? Good. It's going by fast. Yeah. I've had a lot going on, but um, there have been a couple little breaks, like like St. Joseph's Day. Mm -hmm. I had a wonderful 
visit to St. Joseph High School in South Bend. And, you know, but uh, confirmation season started. And because uh, I have to start even in Lent because there's so many, I can't fit them all in in the Easter season. So, so I love doing the confirmations. But yeah, I, um, I think it's been, uh, for me, a pretty fruitful Lent so far. Yeah. Uh, still striving. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, speaking of Lent, you posted a while back, and we haven't had a chance to talk about it yet, for the Today's Catholic, which people can find on the website as well, an article about Lent and kind of kicking it off and challenging us during Lent. And you reflected on the parable of removing the splinter from your eye. But I thought this also relates a little bit to the readings from Saturday's gospel, which we hear it's uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector, which comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And uh, we have a copy of that. Would you mind maybe sharing that? And then maybe we could talk about it a little bit. Yes, Kyle, you know, that's a great parable for us to think about during Lent, to, to meditate on. As a matter of fact, last year, my Lenten message to the people of the diocese was focused on the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Uh-huh. And, um, and the reason I think it's so important to uh, meditate on during Lent is because it has to do with prayer. And of course, we look at the three practices of Lent, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So when we look at our prayer life, I think it's always good to look at it in light of this parable. Because if we see some of the Pharisee in ourselves, we have to try to get rid of it and ask the Lord uh, to help us get rid of it because it really is pride. Mm. You know, it's necessary to, to conquer our pride because, you know, when the Pharisee was praying in the temple, he was bragging, really. He was praising himself. It might be helpful just to uh, read that parable. And um, I can do that now. And then just a few thoughts about it. Sure. It's from chapter 18 of Luke's gospel, verses 9 to 14. Jesus addressed this parable to those who were convinced of their own righteousness and despised everyone else. Two people went up to the temple area to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee took up his position and spoke this prayer to himself. Oh God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of humanity, greedy, dishonest, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes on my whole income. But the tax collector stood off at a distance and would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and prayed, O oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, the latter went home justified, not the former. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I think this is such an important parable. Um, when you think about the Pharisee, he did. A, I'm sure he did a lot of good things. He fasted, he tithed, all those things that he brags about, they're good mm-hmm. things. So he was observing the laws, he was observing precepts, but everything was exterior. His heart was far from the Lord because of pride. Mm-hmm. It was pride, I, arrogance, really, when you, when you uh, think about that prayer. It wasn't really a prayer. He was praising himself. 
And then he had this sense of superiority over others, you know, like he was better than everybody else. He really had contempt for others, like the tax collector. Mm -hmm. um, he kind of thought of himself as being just, but he wasn't because he neglected the most important commandment, love of God and love of neighbor. Hmm. And um, even the way he prayed, he, he, it says that his head was unbowed. He didn't feel the need to prostrate himself before God's majesty. Right. Um, so, so his prayer wasn't real authentic prayer. And his heart wasn't in it. And that's what happens with pride, you know, and we all need to work against that capital sin of pride because it creates distance from God. It empties our prayer, really. Um, but then on the other hand, you have this, this tax collector. Now, he wasn't a good guy. I mean, he was collecting taxes for Rome, for a foreign empire. He became rich by cheating people, so he was a sinner. He stole from his own people. Hmm. You know, it's kind of like he becomes in this parable of the good guy and the Pharisee, the bad guy. So imagine the Jews who were listening to that. I mean, this was pretty startling to them to hear the way Jesus uh, presented the, the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector. Because people would have been thinking, oh, yeah, the Pharisees are the good guys, tax collectors are the bad guys. Right. But even though this, this tax collector was a sinful man, he was humble. He didn't have that pride of the Pharisee. He prayed with a humble and a contrite heart. He had committed serious sins, but he was sorry. Mm -hmm. And he was repentant. And it says like he, he prostrated himself there, something the, the Pharisee didn't do. And he prayed from his heart. He didn't pray a lot of words like the Pharisee did, but just a, full, a few words, but they were full of meaning depth he said god be merciful to me a sinner so god heard that prayer he hears the prayers that come from hearts that are humble and contrite so i think it's a really important message for us i remember the advice given by one of the great doctors of the church saint basil the great <laughs> saint basil said Never place yourself above anyone, not even great sinners. Humility often saves a sinner who has committed many terrible transgressions. Hmm. So during Lent, this is a great parable to meditate on as we strive to rid ourselves of pride. And it really means being truthful. And the truth is we're sinners. We need God. We need his mercy. So that's a great prayer to say, the very simple prayer of the, of the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So it does connect, as you said, Kyle, to the, um, well, that I talked about in my Lenten message this year uh -huh. from Jesus's Sermon on the Plain, which is also in this Sermon on the Mount, about how we need to remove this uh, splinter or the beam in our own eye before seeking to remove the splinter in our brother's eye, you know? Because right. we're hypocrites like the Pharisees when we judge other people's faults while ignoring our own faults. And, um, you know, this parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee really connects to that, that saying of Jesus 
about removing the plank from our own eye first. Yeah. And I think today we look back at the Pharisees and we see how Jesus was constantly kind of hard on them. And we think of them as the bad guy, or we think of them as the ones that are making spiritual mistakes. But we kind of forget that those were the religious leaders at the time. And that's not how it was perceived by the people that were there and hearing the story live. And the irony of all of this, I think, is sometimes that we can look and say like, well, at least I'm humble and not arrogant like the Pharisees. And then we're doing the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, something we, we, we can't deceive ourselves. Right. Uh, because I think we all have to admit that we have pride within us. Yeah. You know? All right. Well, coming up, I want to talk uh, more about your Lenten message and this idea of splinters and planks in our eyes. And we'll get to listener submitted questions right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we are in Lent. And so we've been talking about some of Bishop's Lenten messages. We've talked about last year's message and the idea of Uh, the importance, I guess, of humility and not thinking that we're better than somebody else. And a lot of times the humility in the sin is what's really important. And sometimes our arrogance, even if we're not as sinful, can be a hindrance to our ability to receive forgiveness for the sins that we have committed. And this kind of relating to this year's Lenten message that you had posted in Today's Catholic, and people can find that at todayscatholic.org. And talking a lot about, uh, I guess, uh, somewhat about what we give up for Lent and how a lot of times the words that we say can be so damaging and um, maybe focusing on that more than sweets mm-hmm. is, a, is a better Lenten right. activity. Right. and. It's never too late to add something to our, our Lenten thing. So if people haven't had a chance to read this, maybe this will be an inspiration to kind of kick things in gear here as we round off the maybe second half of Lent. Yeah, you know, it was the gospel uh, on s- the Sunday before Ash Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And that was the gospel from the Sermon on the Plain in God in uh, Luke's gospel, where Jesus said, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove that splinter in your eye when you do not even notice the wooden beam in your own eye, you hypocrite. You know, Hmm. he said, remove the wooden beam from your eye first, then you will see clearly to remove the splinter in your brother's eye. So when I was preparing a homily for that Sunday, it occurred to me, wow, this would be a really good message for Lent. Mm -hmm. So then I ended up kind of changing that homily and also making it my Lenten message to the diocese. And what what came to my mind were sins of the tongue, mm-hmm. that how often we're tempted to speak ill of others or to write derogatory things about others. And I say in the message that we, we need to hear Jesus saying to us, you hypocrite, Remove the wooden beam from your own eye first. There's also a, uh, a sentence in Matthew's gospel where Jesus said, but I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. And I thought, wow, because 
I think, you know, people minimize these sins of the tongue. Mm-hmm. We, and it's, it's just like they abound right. nowadays, not only in society, but also it's seeped into the church. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the Lenten message, I focus on three sins. And again, I, I think we can forget that these are, are serious sins. One of them is the, the sin of detraction. Hmm. And, you know, I've just noticed this growing in our, in our society and even in the church. And, you know, detraction can be a mortal sin. You know, it can do a lot of harm to someone else. And, you know, the sin of distraction, or I'm sorry, detraction, is when we disclose other people's faults and failings without an objectively valid reason. And we can destroy people's reputation. Hmm. We can destroy their honor. It's really, and you say, oh yeah, it's a sin against charity, but it's also a sin against justice. So when you look at all this malicious talk about others, and we see it in politics, I mean, it's all the time, every day. But we also, you know, I'll read letters or I'll, on social media, it's all over yeah. the place. People yeah. condemning other people, talking about their personal faults and failings. When we rob people of their honor and reputation, we're harming them. Mm-hmm. Um, but oftentimes people will gossip and they won't uh, think twice about speaking ill mm-hmm. about others. You know, we need to learn to bite our tongue, to bridle our tongues. I mean, some of the tweets you see or some blogs. They're just filled with detraction. You know, another word for that is slander, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's why I said in my message that it's more important to give up the sin of gossip, to give up detraction or slander than candies or desserts. So when we're tempted to speak ill of others or to write derogatory things about other people, we should try to hear Jesus saying to us, you hypocrite, you know, remove the wooden beam from your own eye first. But, you know, detraction is not the only sin of the tongue. I also mention in my uh, Lenten message the sin of calumny. And there's a lot of calumny where one says false things about others, Mm. harming their honor and reputation. So in detraction, what a person's saying is true, but in calumny, it's even false. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really very, very grave sin. And then the third sin of the tongue that I point out, which again is very prevalent, is rash judgment. Mm. Assuming as true, without sufficient foundation, the moral fault of a neighbor. Making rash judgment, you know. I see this, you know, when people, you know, just they read something or they hear something and they about uh, someone else's sin or moral failing and they just assume it's true and then they can, and then they spread it that's rash judgment mm-hmm. um, and you see a lot of this when it comes to gossip but i think this this reviling of other people this name calling backbiting you know some social media forums they delight in these things right you know and because of the polarization in both the church and in society 
we see this uh, constantly, constant speaking negatively about others and attacking others. And we're really robbing them of their honor or reputation. We should s focus on issues, not on condemning people. We can mm -hmm. obviously debate, you know, if someone has a position that is, is contrary to, to the truth of the gospel. Yeah, we can, we can point that out, et cetera. But, but the thing is, we, we shouldn't be attacking people. Now, it can also happen just when you're in conversations or you're in a group where, you right. know, some kind of, where, where it's kind of negative talk, uh, gossip, criticizing others, attacking others. And I always remember the quote from St. John Vianney, a great parish priest, who said, if something uncharitable is said in your presence, either speak in favor of the absent hmm. or withdraw, or if possible, stop the conversation. Hmm. What great advice yeah. that is. Because I think all of us, sometimes we could be in a group or something and they start reviling somebody or speaking uncharitably about somebody. You know, what do we do? Do we just participate in it or do mm -hmm. we walk away? Or maybe say something in favor of the person that's being talked about, pointing out some good quality of the person. So anyhow, I think that is um, something that we should, uh, and I hope our people are thinking about, because it really, when we get involved in, in that, those sins of the tongue, we really are doing damage, you know, to also ourselves, because we strive to grow in holiness. Well, this is not a way to grow in holiness. Yeah. Going back to the gospel reading here, whenever they say, remove the wooden beam from your eye first, then you will clearly see to remove the splinter in your brother's eye. It is saying that at some point you could help your brother remove that splinter. It's not saying never point out the splinter in your brother's eye, but not to do it until you've removed the beam from your own eye. So at what point do we know that we're in a place that we can point out somebody else's mistakes. Right. And you know, that should be done directly to the person. Right. Which is what is different than the sins that I've mentioned, because the sins that I've mentioned is when you're talking to others, putting somebody else down, mm -hmm. and um, you know, that's not constructive. That's not helping the person. That's hurting their reputation and their honor. So really, yeah, I mean, that's you know, we have the whole notion of fraternal correction. Right. And it's an act of charity if you have someone who's, let's say, um, burdened by a particular sin that they're really harming themselves or harming others. Yes, we even have a duty to offer fraternal correction face-to-face, -face, mm -hmm. you know, to try to help them. And that's not always easy, you know, <laughs> but um, that kind of confrontation. But it n needs to be done in a, in a kind way, a charitable way, but also recognizing that we're not superior to that person, mm -hmm. you know, that, uh, yeah, we have our, our sins. And so one shouldn't approach a person in that situation as if one is superior to him or her right? because we're all sinners. Well, I guess the other side of that coin is when somebody is pointing out something, a mistake that you're making, if they come in charity and, and are giving truth, that we receive that and we, we try to make change instead of 
getting really defensive, but seeing, I guess, constructive criticism when it, when it's coming and find out how we can learn from that. Exactly. And that takes humility. Yeah. Because of our pride, we, you know, we get really hurt if someone points something out and we try to not accept blame when we should accept blame. Yeah. You know, because we all have areas that, um, where we make mistakes or our own faults and shortcomings. And uh, when someone points it out to us, we can become very defensive. Mm -hmm. So we have to try to, you know, swallow our pride a little bit and say, well, or think about it and say, yeah, you're right. You know, I am too boastful or I am too uh, whatever fault that we might have. Yeah. Well, it's a great reflection. Encourage people to go read it. If you go to todayscatholic.org, you can find that. It uh, came out with the March 10th issue of the Today's Catholic. And uh, a great thing to read during Lent at some point and and really reflect on. Uh, And if anybody has any questions for Bishop, you can ask those by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You could call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have questions about becoming a deacon, a canon lawyer, praying in silence, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and I'll be asking questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. Our first submission is, I have two questions, and I should tell you I am a teenager. My first question would be, what steps... I can take to become a married deacon. The second would be if I could be a lay canon lawyer and what steps I should take to do that. My goal is to attend Ave Maria, but if there are other college suggestions, I would like those too. Thanks and God bless. Oh, thank you. Those are good questions uh, to this teenage listener. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as steps to take to become a a married deacon, which of course would be a permanent deacon. I just want to point out one has to be 35 years old uh-huh. before being ordained a permanent deacon. But if as a teenager, you're already thinking that this might be a vocation, that God's call for you, God's will for you, I would say the best thing is is to just be a an active Catholic who who you're getting involved in in your parish where you're doing service because the diaconate is all about service mm-hmm. where you're developing your prayer life and then getting some of the academic foundation which leads to the second question where you mentioned an interest in being a canon lawyer and what steps you should take I think going to Ave Maria is a great step. Ave Maria University is a very good Catholic university. There's others as well. But one of the things, if you're interested in canon law, you don't do that at an undergraduate level. That's a graduate degree. Okay. So my advice is the best major, if you want to be a canon lawyer, I would say major in theology Mm -hmm. as an undergraduate, because it's important to have a good theological foundation for canon law, especially in, for example, theology of the church, ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. So if you can major in theology, or oh, I think that would be kind of the best route for future graduate work in, 
in uh, canon law. You might want to check out the Newman Guide for Catholic colleges and universities, mm-hmm. colleges and universities that are strong in their Catholic identity. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you have this desire to serve the church and just be open to the Holy Spirit in your discernment. We need good lay canon lawyers, so mm-hmm. that's very good, and, uh, and we need good and holy deacons. So, I pray the Holy Spirit will guide you in, in your uh, ongoing discernment. And could you talk a little bit about what a lay canon lawyer would do? Would they have to be employed by a church or diocese, or are there other places that they could find work? Yeah, I mean, they would, I don't know of anyone, perhaps there's those outside the church who would hire a canon lawyer maybe, but I think, I don't know of any, Uh Uh, but dioceses, uh, you know, we have some lay canon lawyers Mm -hmm. here in our own diocese who work in our tribunal. So I'd say dioceses especially, but there might be religious congregations or others okay. who would hire um, a canon lawyer. There could be some other Catholic institutions that might need a canon lawyer, but the diocese, dioceses definitely need canon lawyers. Okay. Yeah. All right. Bob Smith from St. Louis Besanson Parish in New Haven asked, is it better to pray out loud or is it okay to pray in silence? Well, both are important. When we speak of praying out loud, we're normally talking about vocal prayers. Hmm. And vocal prayers are, are very important. Vocal prayers can be like the rosary, which could be said out loud, or it could be said to ourselves, well, to God, but you know, inside, uh, where we just say it, but not out loud. Mm-hmm. That's still a vocal prayer. What's most important, whether we pray out loud or we pray in silence, is that we're really lifting up our minds and hearts to the Lord. It's what's in the heart that is most important, whether one vocalizes it or not. But I would say that prayer in silence is vital Hmm. because prayer also involves listening to God. So if we do all the talking when Mm -hmm. we pray, we're not going to hear the Lord. So I think prayer in silence is, uh, is really important. And you could pray with scripture and, you know, and then after prayerfully reading a passage, just think about it, meditate on it, or just be there with the Lord mm-hmm. who can speak to our hearts. So Bob, I hope that's somewhat helpful. All right. And I think many might have this next question. What would be your number one tip for parents of an adult child who has left the faith? Number one is difficult to say. I would say two tips. Okay. Prayer and love. Prayer and love. Daily prayer for the adult child who's stopped practicing the faith. And it may be years. Mm -hmm. I mean, ask St. Monica, you know, (laughs) to uh, intercede. Um, And actually, prayer is also an act of charity. But when I say love, I mean... Don't reject that child. Mm -hmm. Um, I think your witness to the Catholic faith, your witness to Christ is more important than any words that you might say. Mm -hmm. To witness to your faith is the most powerful way to re-evangelize your child. All right. Any resources that you might recommend or... 
You know, nothing comes to mind immediately, but I'm sure there are resources out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there might be opportunities also if there are particular issues okay. that are the reason for a child, adult child, leaving the faith. I would recommend a parent to perhaps share a book that has to do with that topic mm-hmm. or maybe ask someone else to speak to your child, a priest or someone who who would be able to address the issue or issues that they're having trouble with. Sure. Those are some practical things one can do. All right. Well, you can ask your question by going to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop. You could call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have some more questions, like one about honoring our children, Latin in Mass, and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and I'm asking questions that you've submitted for a bishop to answer. One of our listeners asked, does the commandment honor your father and mother apply in reverse so parents have to honor their children as well? Oh, very good question. You know what immediately comes to mind is if you read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, when it treats of the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother, within that section of the Catechism, they also list or discuss the duties of parents. So I think that's very significant. So explicitly, it's about honoring your parents. Mm Mm-hmm. But implicit, we also should think about, well, what's the duty of parents towards Mm -hmm. their children? So it's significant that it's within the treatment of the fourth commandment that we find that section on the duties of parents. Mm -hmm. And it really is very good. There's one part where it says in its catechism number 2222, four twos, 2222, it says- Parents must regard their children as children of God Hmm. and respect them as human persons, showing themselves obedient to the will of the Father in heaven. They educate their children to fulfill God's law. So, Hmm. this is really fundamental, that parents regard their children as children of God and respect them as human persons. And then when you read on in the next numbers, it talks about parental responsibility for the education of their children, but they also talk about bearing witness to their responsibility for educating their children, first by creating a home where tenderness, forgiveness, respect, fidelity, and disinterested service are the rule. Hmm. And it talks about how parents have a grave responsibility Mm -hmm. to give good example to their children. There's a lot there that I recommend, um, you know, people who want to to read, what does the church actually teach about the duties of parents? Check out the, the catechism, number 2,221 to 2,229. So really, we're talking about a, a mutual affection, the importance of care and attention, 
that parents um, need to devote to their children, their respect for them as human persons, obviously providing for their physical needs, but also their spiritual needs. Mm-hmm. That's um, important. And, and educating the children in the right use of their reason and their freedom. So, yes, I guess in sum, I would say in answer to that question, when we think about the duty of children to honor their parents, it's also good to consider the duty duties of parents towards their children. Yeah, I suppose as a parent, I need to be a parent worthy of honor and that you know, we don't want our our kids imitating our bad behavior, but we need to be a good example so that we are worthy of their honor and respect. And when when a parent fails, what's really important because no father, no mother's perfect um, in in parenting. But I think the catechism also talks about acknowledging their own failings to their children. Yeah, which is something that I don't know if parents think about very much, but I think so. I mean, parents who who, for example, if they get uh, angry at their children, you know, lose their temper, whatever, it's important then to apologize. Yeah. Yeah. A quick story. My son just made his first confession and he came back from confession nearly skipping, you know, just kind of, he was so intimidated about it before he went in, (laughs) but afterwards he was just uh, loved it. And he came and sat down. I was standing in the back with our baby and he came in the pew and he said something to my wife and gave her a big hug. And I saw people sitting behind just like tears and like wiping tears uh, to see this kid coming back from confession and reconciling with mom a little bit. He said that was part of his penance was he was supposed to give mom and dad a hug. <laughs> so, oh, that is great. Yeah. Did he give you a hug too? He Carl? did. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Our next question is, why can't we have a little more Latin in Mass besides at Advent in Lent? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, the, the use of Latin at Mass, you know, some people want more and some want less. It's interesting. <laughs> people have different tastes. Yeah. Sometimes I'll, I'll get complaints on both sides where some will say, well, in our parish, we should be using more Latin. Mm-hmm. And then I'll get an, another letter and someone says, we use too much Latin. I don't like it. Uh-huh. So uh, <laughs> I, I hope everyone will lighten up a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but I, I would say that um, what the church, I mean, Latin is the universal language of the church. Mm-hmm. And the Second Vatican Council, when it allowed for the celebration of the liturgy in the vernacular, mm-hmm. it did say that um, people should still know the main parts of the Mass in Latin. That would be things like the the Sanctus, the Holy Holy, mm-hmm. or the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. Mm-hmm. There are other main parts of the Mass, like the Gloria or the Our Father. What we found after the Council is a lot of places they just stopped any use of Latin. That wasn't the intention of the Council Fathers. Hmm. Um, so we've seen in more recent years kind of a return of using Latin, especially in some of those those main parts of the Mass so that our people are familiar with it as the universal language of the church. And then if you go to an international kind of Mass like at 
in Rome or World Youth Day or whatever, you're able to participate because you know the Sanctus or you know the Our Father right. in Latin. So it's certainly legitimate, but but I don't think um, it should be something that people quarrel about. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, yes, everyone has their own tastes. And I respect that. Some people may want to go to a liturgies where they know that there's going to be more Latin use because they like it. Mm-hmm. Or people might choose to go somewhere where, you know, maybe they don't care for it so much. So go to a different liturgy, you know. For me, the Mass and the prayers are so sacred that I can go with whatever, you know, in the sense of. Uh, but I do think that we should uh, have the opportunity for use of Latin because that was the mind mm-hmm. of the Second Vatican Council. And can you comment a little bit about the churches in the diocese that have Latin masses? Well, we have two parishes that are um, served by the priestly fraternity of St. Peter where they celebrate mass in the extraordinary form. Mm-hmm. So that would be St. Stanislaus in South Bend and Sacred Heart in Fort Wayne. Mm-hmm. But that's not just having Latin Mass. That's also the older form of the Mass that was used prior to the liturgical renewal of the Second Vatican Council. But then there's places where, yeah, they use the Novus Ordo, the New Order, the ordinary form of the Mass, but they incorporate Latin into it, which Mm -hmm. is very legitimate. I don't know of any parishes where they actually celebrate the ordinary form mass all in Latin. Okay. That's permissible, but I don't know of any. All right. Well, are you ready for a Father Eric question? <laughs> oh, I know it's going to be humorous if it's from Father Eric. <laughs> Father Eric Bergner from St. Pius the 10th Parish in Granger asked, do doctors of the church perform surgeries? <laughs> and also, do you have a favorite? Oh my goodness. I knew it would be something funny. <laughs> Thanks, Father Eric. Uh, yes, they, they perform spiritual surgery. There, there yeah. Um, but do I have a favorite? Oh my goodness! You know, I can't think of one favorite. I would say I have three favorites. Okay, is that all right? I'll take it. Okay, I would say my three favorite doctors of the church would be Saint Augustine, uh-huh. Saint Thomas Aquinas, okay. and Saint Therese of Lisieux. Huh? Any particular reason for those three i think they're the ones who've probably affected my thinking the most but also touched my heart the most what does it take to be a doctor of the church it would be someone who's a a uh a scholar not necessarily academic uh, degree like St. Therese wasn't that kind of a scholar, but someone who has deep knowledge and understanding of the mysteries of the faith. And obviously it has to be a saint. So mm-hmm. someone of of heroic virtue and holiness. So I forget the number of doctors of the church at the present time. I, it's in the 20s. But uh, I mean, all the doctors of the church are wonderful to read and study. But for me, those would be the three that would be my favorites Mm -hmm. to read uh, because of their insights and how it's helped me both intellectually and spiritually to uh, study those three doctors. And I remember hearing or reading at one time that St. Pope John Paul II might be a doctor and then also St. Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, that there was a potential that she would be a doctor of the church, uh, 
for her charity. Yeah, you know, uh, who knows? I mean, it's up to the Pope. Okay. But when you look at the the writings of of Pope John Paul II and his teachings, yeah, he would certainly be a candidate. I mean, um, another one that I hear actually talked about more nowadays is Cardinal Newman. Mm. Now he's not yet a saint; he's a blessed. Cardinal John Henry Newman, but when you look at his scholarship, okay. and um, I mean, I would not at all be surprised after he's canonized the saint or when he's canonized the saint mm-hmm. that he might be named a doctor of the church. And I think I read that uh, the second miracle needed for his canonization was recently approved. Right. So I, I expect we'll see maybe this year or next year his canonization and it would be interesting if pope francis declares him a doctor of the church all right well we'll be on the lookout for that thank you again bishop for another great episode of truth and charity and for answering the questions that uh, members of the diocese have listeners have and before we go can we get your episcopal blessing sure the lord be with you and with your spirit blessed be the name of the lord now and forever Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Join Bishop and Kyle next Wednesday at noon for another new episode of Truth in Charity, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. (laughs) 